This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio Writing Project. OWP supports teachers from all over Ohio and celebrates the professionalism, expertise, and talent of our state's educators. Ohio Writing Project. Teachers teaching teachers. of the Ohio Writing Project. My name is Noah Waspy, and today I am joined by special guest Elizabeth Ferris, who's going to talk about something called Reggio Emilia and the teaching practices this place has inspired. But first, a poem. Recently, I was I got to have a chance to join Ohio Writing Project's Teacher as Writer credit workshop. Basically, if you've never taken the class, it's unbelievable. You just spend time getting to know yourself as a writer, developing your talent as a writer, and you spend a lot of time writing and sharing your writing with your peers. At the end of it, you will come out of this class with lots of things that are publishable. I recently got to spend time with this group and I asked them to share some of their poetry so that I could, you know, use the poems during the poetry segment of our podcast. And this is one of them. This poem is called Gone Too Soon by Heidi Worman Lamar. I look at her and think of you, flourishing in the moment, surrounded by an ocean of sky and clouds, strength beyond size, wisdom beyond years. She smiles, innocent and bright. You smile, secrets hidden behind your eyes, sadness, loneliness, emptiness. I look at her and wonder if she will make a similar choice and be, before we know, without a warning, gone too soon. In memory of LJNWDRJEBB and all the others who are gone too soon. If you would like a transcript of this poem, it can be found in our episode's show notes. So, now, on to today's guest. Elizabeth Ferris engages in a special kind of project work, a special kind of inquiry work that's known as a Reggio approach or a Reggio-based practice. And at the beginning of the podcast, she's going to talk about what that is in case you're not familiar. And then she's going to talk about what this looks like in her classroom. If you don't know what Reggio Amelia is, well, you're going to love this episode. And if you already know what the Reggio's, what Reggio-based practices are, you're going to be like, oh, finally, I'm not alone. Other people do this work. So here it is, my interview with Elizabeth Ferris. So, Elizabeth. Yeah, hey. You, you do Reggio-inspired learning. Well, you teach yeah. using a Reggio-inspired model. Is that, is that a better way to say it? Yeah, I, I would attempt, all that I hope to do in my classroom, I hope to model it after Reggio. However, Reggio is in Italy, and we are in America, and so th- some things definitely don't always align, but I always, as much as I can, try to be Reggio-inspired, yeah. Yeah, and we're going to, I think we need to kind of unpack this a little bit, because not everyone's going to know what Reggio-inspired means, and what yeah. Reggio Emilia schools are like, at least in the yeah. elementary level. And I think that okay. we also need to unpack why it's called Reggio-inspired and not like the Reggio approach, right? 
Right, yeah. All right, let's start with, like, what Reggio-inspired learning looks like in your classroom. Or no, you know what, let's talk about that second. Let's first talk about what Reggio-inspired learning is. So to me, Reggio-inspired learning is based on what they have done in Reggio Emilia, Italy, um, which um, founded by Loris Malaguzzi. He, um, post-World War II, founded these schools where they really wanted to focus on the whole child, where they believed that children were very capable and they wanted them to be engaged and self-motivated learners. And um, that's what they believed that school should be for children. And so that is also what I believe. However, since I do not live in Italy, I can't say that I'm actually doing the whole Reggio approach itself because it's very much based on the place and not just, um, I don't know, just not the pedagogy or the ideology. It's very much about, for them, it's about the community and the space. And so I can't say I'm 100% I'm a Reggio, but I'm inspired by it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. (laughs) Well, I've read a little bit about it. And like Lily and Katz and Sylvia Chard do a lot of Reggio-based um, work, and there's a lot. They've written several books and articles about it, and they. Yeah. And I remember, I think at one point in one, of, maybe it was Lily, Lily and Katz's book, Young Investigators. Uh-huh. I think that might be the book where she talks about this. She talks about how you don't want to call it like the Reg, the Reggio approach, because every school, in even in Reggio Emilia, that teaches this way is different because the place where you're teaching the community that you're teaching mm-hmm. affects how you teach, right? Exactly, yes. How Can you talk about some of the ways that like, your place can impact the way you approach Reggio? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's the community is a huge part of it and just like who the families are that, you know, bring their children to school at Hopewell. So that's a big part of it, just what they what their beliefs and understandings are and what they bring to school. So that's a huge part of it. Um, It's kind of their, I guess, who they are in their community is also who they are going to be in our classrooms. And so they bring a lot of, um, I don't know, I don't know what the word is, just great characteristics of things that we can learn from, not just the child, but the whole family. So what does Reggio-inspired learning look like in your classroom um so that's kind of a big messy. question maybe you could talk it about something you did recently or yeah well i mean i think a big part of it is just using a project approach so the idea that children can guide kind of where our learning goes based on their interest and so you can it's all it's really about observing your students very closely listening in on their conversations to try to get an idea of what it is they want to learn about and then monopolizing on those things and so for example if there i had a class one year very very interested in dinosaurs like all my kids they already had a a lot of knowledge about dinosaurs but they were constantly just talking about dinosaurs i would see it in their play and so that launched kind of an investigation of dinosaurs. And so that's kind of a big part of Reggio-inspired learning to me is just using the student's interest to create some sort of project and then teaching all that I need to teach them through that project. How do you just... Or at least, I can't say all, but as much as I can, yeah. 
So it sounds like to really nail a Reggio-inspired approach, you have to spend a lot of time really paying attention to your students. What, do you, what are your students doing up until you can find that thing, that project that you're going to do with them that's based off their interests? How do you like find out what yeah. their interests are? So for me, it's a lot about them having choice and play in the classroom. So we have a part of our day, and we actually have two parts of our day. So I have one part of our day, which is choice time, and that's more just completely up to the students. We do this at the beginning of our day. So they can come in, and they can do anything in the room that they choose to do as long as, you know, it's appropriate and we've talked about it and so forth. Um, and then play workshop is another part of our day where I am actually intentionally teaching all kinds of things from social skills to if we were to be doing a project that I would be doing like lessons and some sort of like inquiry during a 10 to 15 minute mini lesson. And then from there, the students go off and there's still choice but they go off and play in different play stations. And there are what we call provocations set up around the room where they are practicing skills and they are learning and lots of hands-on types of play. So play, I would say, is probably a huge factor for us and being a Reggio-inspired classroom. So you teach kindergarten. I teach kindergarten, yes. I teach sixth grade. What cool. you're talking about with choice time reminds me of what Smokey Daniels would call a soft start. Yes, absolutely. Very similar. Or same thing. Yeah. And your play workshop sounds a little bit like either project-based learning or 20% time, which I know are two different things, but that's kind of yes. the, what I'm picking up on. Is that is that would that be accurate? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, there are definitely like during that are kind of constants. For example, like the block area, there's always gonna be an option for them to go play in the blocks. Or we have an art studio where there's always an option for them to go and create whatever it is that they want to create. But then I also try to set up different provocations throughout the room that might match a project that we're doing that allows them to investigate something we're investigating together. So what are some of those mini lessons that you teach look like can you give some examples of some of those mini lessons that you teach before having yeah. them go off and work so a lot of it is based on like what i see the kids doing during play workshop and right now it's still sort of early in the year it's a lot of social type things like so students who are struggling to share we will have a lesson and do a lot of role playing on what it looks like to share with others or um if there's a problem that arises like something maybe supplies run out and students are upset because they weren't able to do something because the supplies were gone. So we might, again, talk through or model what it looks like to be a problem solver when something like that happens. So right now it's a lot of that kind of thing. So um, like I said, if we were into an actual project, then some of our mini lessons might be based on like what it looks like to be a scientist or a researcher or something like that. It's This is, sounds so smart because once again it goes back to observing. Observing is not something you just do to try to find what project you can do as a class to, that could emerge. Observing is something that you're doing while kids are working so you can figure out figure out what skills they need to be taught. Right, exactly. And it all. I also think a cool thing is a lot of times when problems arise in our classrooms, 
we try to like put out the fire by throwing a blanket over it instead of trying to solve the problem right or figure out what yeah. caused the fire and it yeah. seems like you or try giving them tools to help them solve it independently the next time that's kind of my goal at all times like i could solve this with you here in the moment right now but what about when this happens again next time and i'm not there how are you going to solve it will you have a tool to use to help you solve it so this what you're doing what you're talking about is something that any teacher who does inquiry I know that not every teacher can probably break out and do a Reggio-inspired work with their classroom tomorrow. Right, absolutely. But any teacher who uses inquiry can use this approach. Observe your students when you're doing a project or in, or some kind of any insert any kind of inquiry here. Yeah. And your your mini lessons before you start the next day are whatever problems are arising, common needs, or maybe it's just like Everybody yeah. who does inquiry needs this mini lesson at mm -hmm. some point. Or sometimes it's about just allowing the students time to share an idea or to share a question that they're pondering or something like that, too. So it's not always about me having something to tell the class. Sometimes it's about the students having a chance to share what they're thinking or what they're wondering or to even share a piece of artwork they did and to be able to share their thinking process through that piece of artwork or something they built or so forth. They must feel really empowered a lot of the time. I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> that is the goal. <laughs> and so you've taken like a almost like a reading or writing workshop model and applied it to inquiry work. Yes, in, exactly. During play workshop. Yes. So then provocations. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what provocation, like how provocations work? And Absolutely. So to me, a provocation is just getting the kids, the idea is to get, to provoke thought, to get them thinking, to get them wondering, to get them exploring, um, and usually in a hands-on way. So an inquiry, we're doing kind of a mini inquiry right now. This one's based on standards, so it's not from my students' interest necessarily, although Plenty of them are interested in this topic, but we've been studying the moon. So a provocation, some provocations I have set up right now are um, some art supplies where they can paint what they think the moon looks like. Um, and then I have some, an art provocation where they can do nighttime paintings, what, what they would like to do in the nighttime, and then they um, cover it with uh, water or black watercolors like liquid watercolor so it looks like nighttime so they're really into that uh, another provocation I have out is just some sand and some rocks like it's that kinetic sand so they can kind of physically see what it's like for a crater to be formed in the moon because they're basically smashing the rocks into the sand so they can see what that's like um, and then I have where they're making the phases of the moon so just I have like white circles and they can draw the different phases and make what those look like, so. How, how did these ideas come to you? Um, they don't always just come to me, for sure. I use mm -hmm. lots of resources. Um, I mean, definitely Pinterest, but also some of my favorite resources, I would say, are um, Playful Learning, which is both a book and a website. Um, Mariah Bruel is the author of the book. Um, amazing stuff on there so i get lots of ideas from there um trying to think about lily and kath is a huge resource as well for just kind of doing the whole project approach um what else i don't know 
just kind of here and there, I guess. I mean, honestly, social media, mm-hmm. when that came into existence <laughs> over the past few years, I'm not so huge. I follow so many amazing teachers on Instagram who kind of share the same philosophies as me, and I get tons of ideas from them as well. So, and Twitter and, and all over. You, you kind of hinted at, at something. You hinted that the moon is one of your... Um, one of your standards has to do with the moon. I'm not right. super familiar with kindergarten standards. Yeah. And I think that if I were a teacher who hasn't done anything with Reggio-inspired work, all the Reggio-inspired teachers are, like, pumping their fists in the air, thinking this is amazing, because it is. Yeah. yeah. But all the teachers that, that aren't might be like, how do you fit in the, the standards and we have to do? Yeah. So yeah. I didn't mean to mock them with that voice. <laughs> I think it would be no, a common. I, like qu- I think it's a common question. Can Absolutely. you talk about how you fit in the things that, like, your bosses and our bosses would expect us to? How do you fit all that in, like the standards right, right. work? So I've chosen to teach all of my science and social studies standards through play workshop. So there isn't like a separate time of our day that's called like science time or social studies time. I just teach it. By offering those provocations and doing little inquiries where they're exploring. And then I do lots of reading. Obviously, we're reading lots of moon books so that we're learning and discussing it, like during morning meeting time or read aloud time, whatever that is. And then they get to really explore during play workshop. So that's probably not what I always do. What I would say when I first started teaching, I always had like the separate time of day for science and social studies where we might be doing some kind of activity, whether it was like a paper sort or some kind of worksheet or something like that. And I just felt that my students weren't always engaged in that, especially as kindergartners. Um, So I kind of, as I was learning more about the Reggio inspired learning and a project approach, I was like, aha, I could, I don't need to add something. I could just kind of take away what I was doing and add in what I think is more appropriate for them to be learning in a hands-on, exploratory way. What are some common issues that arise? Um, I would say, I would say a challenge that I have is sometimes I am limited by my knowledge, and sometimes I kind of get stuck if we're like in the middle of a project and I kind of get stuck, I just don't know where to take it next, it can be difficult. And so I'm actually really grateful to be in the new building that I'm in this year. There's lots of teachers who share the same philosophy as me and so that we all are able to kind of balance those ideas off of each other and we all kind of are coming from the same understanding. Mm -hmm. But I haven't always had that and so I've definitely had years where Nobody else seems to understand what I'm trying to do, and so I don't always feel like I've never haven't always felt like I've had people to go and talk to about it and get ideas from. But, oh my gosh! Yeah. So, um, I'm just gonna put this out there. Six years okay. ago, I tried to do some Reggio-inspired work um, with sixth graders, uh-huh. and my mother-in-law, who is a professor at Northern Kentucky University. Her name is Dr. Sue Griebling. She researched what it was going to look, because she's a Reggio-inspired person, too. She researched what was going on in my classroom to see what would happen. And 
what you're talking about. When you do Reggio work, I would say that is the biggest problem. When, you're, when, you, when you do inquiry work with kids, there's not like a set ending that you all, like for right. us, that we know what it's gonna look. Some kids we know right. what it should look like and some kids, they're out of our depth. And yes. when you're the only person doing Reggio work, it can be really hard. Yeah, for sure. That was the big thing for me is like, if I didn't have these professors at Northern Kentucky University that I could check in with and tell them like, I am freaking out right now because I don't know what I'm doing sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think too, honestly, I mean, just where we are at with education in our country, mm -hmm. it's just kind of at odds with what I'm trying to accomplish with a Reggio-inspired classroom. And so, because I do have so many standards to cover, and there are, I mean, there's the expectations to me for kindergartners are through the roof right now. I mean, we keep expecting more and more of these children at a younger age, and it's a very opposite of what I necessarily feel about what kids should be doing when they're five years old in, in school. To me, it should be all about play, and we're, we're exploring and learning through that way. But when you have like all of these things that they're supposed to accomplish by the end of the year, that's also probably a big challenge too. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, a lot of people who are smarter than I am and who have done more research have said that um, we're using a factory model for education. We're, we're training people, we're giving people skills that they would need to work in factories and we're giving people skills that they would need to get English degrees or to get mm -hmm. history degrees or to get science degrees. Yeah. But are we, what, are we really teaching people the skills that they need to do whatever they're going to eventually do 